Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we've got an exciting and interesting topic, especially as we go forward in the future of video games and really software of all kinds. It's not limited to the video game industry. Uh, And that's in respect of the question of preservation of what this hobby of ours, or if we're doing more serious software work, what our business looks like 10, 20, 30 years down the line for those folks that want to look back at what it meant to play video games or to make business enterprise software or to really just interact in the internet age or in the software as a service or games as a service age and the difficulty that our current laws framework really kind of puts folks that want to preserve the information on video games and on software in. And this was all precipitated by an article I saw this morning, uh, which says Sony is shutting down all Drive Club online servers. The article I'm looking at is from gamesindustry.biz. And for those of you who maybe didn't follow the Sony PlayStation 4 launch that closely or just now getting into video games, uh, the Drive Club launch was one of the crown jewels in Sony's uh, kind of presentation about why gamers should move over from the PlayStation 3 to the PlayStation 4. And the pitch was really focused on online infrastructure. You were going to be a member of a drive club. You were going to uh, have different people that you would race against either in real time or separately, and their times and their curve taking and their speeds would all be recorded in the in the cloud and would be presented to you as you drove through these different racing environments, constantly improving and constantly trying to best your friends and send them messages that you just bested them and get them to come online and, and fight you and that kind of thing. Uh, It was that infrastructure that was needed to kind of fulfill that dream that really made the launch of Drive Club so catastrophic. Whether it was a problem with planning or coding, I couldn't tell you. But the Drive Club launch wound up crashing all sorts of things. It didn't work right. They had to turn off online features for a time, slowly bring them back. Finally, they got it working, and it worked pretty well. It turned into a pretty good game. Uh, And that process is interesting enough in and of itself Uh, But Sony cut the team that made Drive Club loose. That team went on to try to do other things and finally uh, collapsed uh, after another kind of failed launch, uh, which is a loss for the industry in and of itself. They had made games like MotorStorm that I personally enjoyed. Uh, But separating from that, Sony had maintained the servers that had run Drive Club for the years uh, since they had kind of cut that developer loose. Uh, And now it says that they are shutting down Uh, their online servers. The article says, Sony Interactive Entertainment is shutting down the online servers for Drive Club five years after the PlayStation 4 racing title first launched. The shutdown will make all online features in Drive Club, Drive Club VR, and Drive Club Bikes defunct. It will take place on March 31st, 2020, just before midnight British summer time. 
so just about a year from now. In a statement, Sony said that all Drive Club games will be playable in single-player offline mode while acknowledging that they have significant amounts of online gameplay. This article goes on to kind of talk about the history of some other things that Sony is canceling, as well as the launch of Drive Club that we just talked about at the start of this video and podcast. But I want to take a look at the actual PlayStation statement because it is one of the things that really highlighted for me, once again, how big of an issue this is, particularly in the video game space. And here's the statement that Sony made. They just call it decommission servers. And this is clearly a kind of archival statement that they update with whatever is the current servers that they're decommissioning. But at the end of this statement, they have a list of basically all the servers they've decommissioned since really the PlayStation 2 era, which was the start of this kind of online connectivity. And I've highlighted a couple of those when we get down to it. But as you heard from that article, they say, we're going to cease operation of the servers on 31st of March 2020. You will still be able to play and enjoy these games in single-player offline modes. However, the games have significant amounts of online gameplay. So from the 31st of March 2020, functionality will be affected in the following ways. No season passes, no representing your club online, no playing online multiplayer, no creating your own events, no leaderboards, stats, player progress, etc., um, so Drive Club, the teeth of Drive Club, what made it different, what made it a product worth following, uh, is going to be taken out. You're still going to be able to play single player. You're still going to be able to see the graphics and play on some of those tracks. But the game isn't going to function how it was intended, how it was designed to be played. And that's really not going to be available for anybody in about a year from now, on March 31st, 2020. Uh, they say the same thing about PlayStation 4 VR game Starblood Arena. Uh, which is a game I'm only passingly familiar with. The same issues would apply there, obviously, uh, but it's not the same kind of size of launch that Drive Club was. Drive Club was also initially one of the games that PlayStation was trying to use to sell the fact that multiplayer connectivity was going to cost money in the PlayStation 4 era. Uh, so Drive Club was supposed to be one of the first PlayStation Plus games that was going to be released uh, and get people... Uh, not, if not excited, at least accepting of the fact that multiplayer was going to cost money. Uh, and so there was a lot of scrambling around uh, when Drive Club wasn't ready for uh, the spotlight, when PlayStation Plus was ready to launch, when PlayStation 4 was ready to launch. And so there was some maneuvering around there in terms of getting games in place. Uh, and they wound up essentially establishing that Drive Club demo would be available on Plus and a whole other bunch of stuff. Drive Club is a fascinating study in drama of the early PlayStation 4 era. I highly recommend checking out some articles on it uh, because it is so interesting and it did lead down these interesting pathways. And again, another interesting pathway right now with the acknowledgement that the servers are going to be turned off. Uh, but at the bottom of this kind of stub article that Sony put up, they have a listing of their previously decommissioned titles, uh, which I give them credit for because it's a very interesting kind of walk down uh, memory lane. We see here in the PlayStation 4 era, I didn't highlight it, uh, but we see here the Tomorrow Children, uh, which is not that old. It has to have been released only in the last couple years. And you can see here, just like with some of the things we're seeing on the PC side of things, with easy, uh, early access games essentially just being stopped, production being stopped if they don't sell enough of the kind of early approaches, uh, early purchases of 
a half finished product that with something like the tomorrow children, if enough people don't sign up, if it doesn't make enough sense for them to keep the servers running because they didn't sell enough copies, there is very little limit that they have on shutting down the servers uh, because it doesn't make sense for them monetarily. There's not a lot of uh, political or societal pressure on them to keep these things open. Uh, one, because they're going to be offending a small amount of people kind of by virtue of that equation. Not enough people bought it, so it's not a big enough group to really worry about offending. Uh, but also because not a lot of people are paying attention to this that much. Uh, but I think that's going to change a lot going forward. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But it's certainly clear that the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One era marks a kind of sea change, a significant shift uh, in where we were at in the video game industry before this generation in terms of what once was a product that you bought in a box and put a disc into a system or a cartridge uh, and played that game is now much more closely aligned and tied with these online features. Uh, and especially when we're talking about the destinies of the world, the Division 2s, the Anthems, uh, all those kinds of permanently online, requires online games, Fortnite, um, there's going to be a significant uh, shift in whether or not those experiences can be preserved in 10 years, in 15 years, in 20 years, uh, because of the way the current law operates. But I just wanted to take a look at this list a little bit, uh, highlight some things on it that I thought were interesting. PlayStation 3 era, you know, I, I highlighted here Warhawk. That was a significant move towards a kind of robust, uh, agile-based online game. Uh, and it was one of the more popular games in the PlayStation 3 era for a time. And I don't know how long that time was. I certainly played it a bunch with my family members uh, and enjoyed myself. Uh, and it's just the nature of the thing that the PlayStation 4 has now been out for uh, six years or so. And the PlayStation 3 is separated enough in time from that that the Warhawk servers were taken down sometime in the past. Uh, and that's interesting because you look at that and you say, that was an influential game. That was a game that was successful. There were always people playing it when I wanted to play it, when it was available, when it was its time. And it just doesn't exist anymore. You can't play Warhawk right now uh, because copyrights, as we've talked about in previous episodes of Virtual Legality, copyrights are rights to this product. These ephemeral intellectual property rights that the corporation that made the game has and part of copyright is the right to exclude others from copying it, from using it uh, in a way that you don't want. Warhawk isn't that old, uh, so the claim to copyright is stronger than maybe something older. Uh, but it is still notable that you can't play it. And one of the things I want anybody to take away from this video is this kind of notion, this interesting part. We talk about preservation. We think about museums and things like that. And I've named the video uh, and the podcast uh, entry like that. But one of the kind of core conceits of preservation is that we can learn from the past. I think everybody that's in the video game industry or really any software related industry or anything that's making something creative knows that you get better, you make something more uh, correctly by learning from the failures, learning from the dead ends, the missteps, the, the pathways that didn't lead to anything productive uh, in the past. And Warhawk's a great game. I enjoyed it a lot, but it is without doubt that they made some mistakes. They made some things that could improve games down the line. Uh, and they could make, they made some decisions that maybe you could learn from in terms of how they use their vehicles, how you drove uh, the combat in a very specific way, how level design was managed. I'm not a game designer. I can't speak to the details there, but I know enough about the creative process to say I am sure there are things that could be learned from Warhawk. Just as sure I'm, as I'm, there could be things learned from Dance Party 
Dance Star Party hits, I'm sure, I, I can imagine. Uh, and it's a shame that these games aren't available even for other developers to kind of look at, to review, to think about, to reflect upon, uh, because that's what's going to lead to the next great thing. That's what's going to constantly improve what we are seeing in the video game industry. You don't have quite the same problem in the movie industry, for instance, because you can see what came before. You can take a look at Citizen Kane and see what was done with camera angles and see what was done with set dressing and see how that evolved through the period after that film and get to the point where what you're looking at now in movies, with maybe the exception of the screenwriting, in some cases, is uniformly better on just a quantitative uh, quality basis uh, in terms of how the film looks, how we feel about it, how the scene composition looks, than it was decades in the past. Because every single time, lessons are learned, lessons are passed on to the next generation, and things get better. Uh, and that's just not necessarily going to be the case in the games industry if we keep cutting off, essentially, the things that we did five years ago, seven years ago, nine years ago, ten years ago, because that's how people learn. And I have a significant concern about things going forward, especially from the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One era, because this is the era where so many more games have these connective tissues to the online infrastructure. And if they are cut off, I'm not sure many of these games even function. But that's Warhawk and a few other thoughts. Uh, I also noted Resistance Fall of Man, Resistance 2, and Resistance 3. Resistance 2 is really the one I flagged here uh, specifically because I recall specifically playing the multiplayer elements of Resistance 2, which was a class-based cooperative game uh, that was very odd for the, uh, for the time period, and thinking about how unusual and how interesting it was. And I look at this list and I think, wow, you know, I think that uh, Blizzard could learn something from that strategy, from the way they put together that game uh, for Overwatch, uh, or that Fortnite could learn something about what they did with movement and what they did with big bad guys that they could maybe implement into an event uh, with zombies or something along those lines. And I just look at this list and think of all the, all the time that's been spent, all the enjoyment that's been had and how it's no longer available uh, for folks to, to really uh, take in, take a look at. That's from an audience perspective, but also from the developer perspective that I mentioned earlier. On the PlayStation 2 side, you look at the SOCOM series. This was one of the first real instances of significant online coordinated tactical play, uh, and it remains kind of a, a hallmark in the PlayStation library, uh, and it's just essentially gone. The single player in SOCOM was fine, but it was never really the hook that you hung your hat on for what SOCOM meant. I remember essentially hooking up the online adapter to my, the back of my PlayStation 2 to get an Ethernet cord, or maybe not even an Ethernet cord at that time, into the back of the PlayStation 2 because it wasn't kind of had that internet connection already set up with it and using a microphone to talk to people online. This was at the same time really as Microsoft was doing the same kind of thing with their Halo series. Uh, and those were the two kind of preeminent online uh, video games that I remember uh, from a, a few decades ago. And the availability of SOCOM is just non-existent at this point in time. And so there's a lot more. You might be able to find some things on this list. I will certainly link uh, this article 
in the description to this video that meant something to you uh, or that meant something to somebody that you knew who loved these games. Uh, those are just kind of my highlights that I picked out for things that were important to the PlayStation legacy and important to the video game industry, certainly at the time that they were released and how they're just gone now. Uh, let's take a look at the software product license. We've done this a couple of times uh, in, in the past uh, when we talked about potential refunds for the Anthem game uh, and other items in the, the Sony library as well as some other places, the Steam uh, terms and conditions and the Epic Game Store terms and conditions. But let's take a look at the software product license just to see what rights that Sony reserves for itself to fully understand kind of how we get to this position. So we're looking at the software product license agreement, which is a kissing cousin to the terms of service and user agreement for the PlayStation Network and the PlayStation services, which we're also going to look at uh, in just a second. But this is the actual license agreement for a piece of software. So if you're imagining what this means, this is you've downloaded Drive Club and this is about your use of Drive Club, what Sony can do with Drive Club, uh, which as you can imagine, is kind of connected. It's a web is between Drive Club as an independent piece of software and the software that's running the PlayStation Network and the PlayStation servers. But this article starts, it says, uh, article, this license agreement starts, it says, by purchasing, downloading, or using the software product, so think Drive Club, you agree to the terms of this software product license agreement. This agreement applies to you unless you and licensor, that's Sony in this case, enter into a separate valid license agreement, in which case the terms of that separate license agreement will govern. That's why you see on especially non-Sony products, you see another terms and conditions kind of click-through sheet that you have to go through, especially in an online connected video game. Those are license agreements. They say they license the software to you and you agree to X, Y, and Z. Uh, one of the things you wind up agreeing to is the next item on our list, which is that the software is licensed to you and not sold. And we've talked about this at length. This is one of those things that surprises people uh, when they think about software. They think they're buying a disc and that it means something. And to some extent, it does, insofar as you can kind of move that disc around and you've got certain protections under the law that allows you to resell that disc. But the underlying code, the software, is not really sold to you. The Sony company or whoever is the licensor of the software is not selling you all rights in the software. They are retaining those rights and they're giving you a license to use it. And that makes sense in a kind of online environment because they have to retain the rights to essentially operate the system. So it all kind of works, but it's a surprise to people because it's not the notion of going to the market and buying a bread and then that bread is yours. It is you are entering into a contract where you have licensed uh, the right to use software in exchange for $60. Uh, and under a license, you are subject to the contractual terms under which the license is described. So you are subject to what we're reading right now. You're subject to what we're looking at. And this says, if the software uses online servers, Drive Club, check, licensor makes no commitment to continue to make those servers available and may terminate online features at any time. So this is a sentence that you will find in every set of terms and conditions in the modern software era of video games, at least. Uh, it is not unique to Sony. I don't want anyone to take this video or this podcast and say, hey, Sony should get rid of that sentence. This isn't something that anybody else does. This is absolutely the market standard. And it's the market standard for the reasons we talked about at the top of this video, which is, hey, if not enough people buy this and it costs us more to operate these servers than it costs uh, than we made in selling the product, then we've got a problem and we need to have the right to terminate the servers because we're not in the business of losing money. That's not 
how we exist. And if we are in the business of losing money, we won't exist for very long. So they have a sentence like this that says, we can turn off the servers whenever we like, really for any reason. And that's all they wind up saying about it. There's some other provisions in here that say you have to arbitrate if you want to bring a claim, but it's a very short license. We're licensing you this software and we can turn off the servers if we want to. But like I said, this is a kissing cousin and connected to the terms of service for the PlayStation Network, which is one of those documents that we looked at in connection with the Anthem refund question. So let's take a look at that right now. In this document, terms of service and user agreement, it says it applies to your access and use of our PlayStation Network's products and services, which they call the PSN services. It says PSN services include the PlayStation Network. That's what we're really concerned with here the PlayStation Store, PlayStation Plus, PlayStation Music, PlayStation Video, PlayStation Now, PlayStation View, and those websites, products, and services that Sony and its affiliates offer through or in connection with PSN or your account. So this document applies to basically everything that you use that connects to the PlayStation Network, that uses those wires to the PlayStation infrastructure to give you your products and services. So that would include essentially your access to the Drive Club servers. So they go together. You have to have essentially agreed to all or most of the components of both of these documents, as well as whatever terms and conditions the actual click-through of Drive Club would have had, which are much harder to find, as you can imagine, because we don't necessarily have access to those clicks right now. Uh, but you look at this and you see the kinds of reasons why preservation becomes such an issue. The community code of conduct, this is what you essentially agree to when you are working with the PlayStation Network. You agree not to modify or attempt to modify the online client, the disk, the save file, the server, the client-server communication, or other parts of any game title or content. That makes sense in a live environment. They don't want you to mess with how their software is interacting with their other software that they're maintaining on the online side. And that makes sense. They don't want viruses introduced. They don't want backdoors introduced. They don't want people getting in there, figuring out how the sausage is made, and screwing up how it's made. So they put in these restrictions. Similarly, they say you may not attempt to hack or reverse engineer any code or equipment used in connection with the PSN services. Again, that makes sense in a live environment. Unfortunately, these are just pieces of what are already the copyright rights that the publisher or the licensor, the owner of this software already has. They have the right to say what you can do with their stuff. And you agree to this, yes, but this is a nice list. It doesn't actually change the relationship that you had with Sony insofar as they never gave you the right to do any of these things anyway. So you were always prohibited from doing them. You only really have the right to use the software. That's all the license that they've given you. People make a list like this, or when I say people, I mean lawyers. Lawyers make a list like this because it's useful to put expressly the prohibitions that are applicable to the license so that if someone sues or if someone creates a problem later on down the line, you have the ability to point to this sentence and say you are in direct violation of this sentence rather than we never licensed you the right to do this thing. It's a little bit more ephemeral. It's a little bit harder to kind of make that rhetorical argument, even if you're in the right from the corporation's side. But with sentences like this, it's very clear that users can't start manipulating the software. They can't start manipulating the code in order to get to the baseline of what the server uses, uh, manipulate it so that they can make their own server. And so you're in an environment in 2019 where you've got video games that were released five years ago, maybe even two years ago, if you look at some of those sports titles on that PlayStation list, that can't be reproduced in the way 
in the manner that they existed in the real-time live environment of that year. So if you want to play Drive Club as you've experienced it right now in 2019, you've got a year left. But if you want to play it right now, if you want to play it like you can right now in April of 2020, you're out of luck. And preservation is out of luck because they are not going to be able to build up that environment again in the way that it existed uh, in real life. Uh, It also says we may indefinitely suspend or discontinue online access to content or data associated with your participation in PSN services at any time, including for service deprecations, maintenance services, or upgrades without prior notice or liability. They can turn off your access. For any PSN service that uses online servers, we make no commitment to continue to make those servers available. In addition, we reserve the right to delete player account data that we determine to have been dormant. So this is the kind of broad language we've talked about in previous videos, but Sony reserves the right to turn off your ability to contact the PlayStation Network entirely, reserves the right to cut off access to the online servers as they have in Drive Club, and reserves the right to delete all your account data if they determine you are dormant, which is not a term of legal significance. It's essentially a reasonability term where as long as they can argue that you're dormant, then they can turn you off. Is that 30 days? Is that 60 days? Is that 180 days? That would be up for argument if they took the action and someone took offense to that action. But it's not otherwise defined in this document. So you've got this scenario where players have entered into these licenses. Sony has, from a corporation standpoint, properly put forth the rights that they need in order to turn off the servers. So they're not operating illegally here. But the video game industry itself has a problem because you've got these environments that can't be reproduced. And so a lot of preservation companies, a lot of museums, a lot of uh, essentially lobbyist groups have come together to try to push for some broadening of the rights of especially museums and archivists to take a look at the video game environment of today, preserve it and be able to access it into the future, which is why we got in October of last year a new it's not exactly a holding. It's essentially an interpretive uh, commitment from the Library of Congress to talk about what is going to be allowed for video game preservation going forward in the future. This is an article from Motherboard that says copyright law just got better for video game history. We're going to talk in just a second about why that title is perhaps a little bit too optimistic for what was actually ruled here. Uh, But The article says a new ruling from the Librarian of Congress is good news for video game preservation. The acting register found that the record supporting granting an expansion in the relatively discrete circumstances where a preservation institution legally possesses a copy of a video game's server code and the game's local code. In such circumstances, the preservation activities described by proponents are likely to be fair uses. Translating that for just a second, what they found was as long as a preservation institution has full and legal copies of both the local code, a piece of drive club software, and the video game's server code, the code that Sony is running on its servers to operate the connections between those servers and the user uh, clients that are actually running drive club. As long as it has both pieces of those code, then there will be circumstances that are likely 
to be fair uses. In fairness to the Librarian of Congress, that's really all they can say in terms of likeliness because uh, fair use is one of those cases that's going to have to be decided on a case-by-case basis with somebody that actually goes through a full court proceeding. They can make recommendations. They can say what their interpretations are. And those interpretations are going to hold a significant amount of weight because they represent something like a safe harbor and a safe harbor being a legal term of art for uh, protection, that if you follow what is said here, you're probably going to be okay. Uh, The other side is going to have to essentially prove that you shouldn't be okay. It essentially flips the burden of proof, uh, and that flipping of the burden of proof is usually enough to protect you. So if you follow exactly what's kind of been put forth by the Librarian of Congress, you probably should be okay. But what they're actually saying is, in a very specific limited number of circumstances where you happen to have the server code, which is going to be the real sticking point here, then probably a preservation institution, i.e. a museum, can put together one of these games once again. Uh, The article says these rules are definitely good news for single-player games. The big change for single-player games happened in 2015 when the Copyright Office decided that museums and archives could break the online authentication for single-player titles that were just phoning home to a server for copy protection reasons. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense as well. They, there were a number of games that essentially called home to make sure that you were running a legitimate and not pirated version of the game. And even the Copyright Act, there wasn't really anything that kind of talked about that kind of behavior. So if the Copyright Act were to be read literally, you couldn't actually modify that to not call home to perhaps a non-existent company or non-existent server because, again, the Copyright Act is, uh, the copyright is sacrosanct. You, as the non-copyright holder, can't make changes. You can't modify things. You can only use it under the license that has been given to you, which in this case would be uh, use, use of the software. Uh, But this decision in 2015, as highlighted in this article, said, okay, you can get rid of that because that's not doing anything uh, and you otherwise should have the right to use the software. And this is kind of the way law works. It continues to evolve uh, just like video games or just like any other industry to kind of better represent what the modern day situation is. But in this particular case, in October of 2018, they didn't go far enough. Uh, The article says today's news should be good for archivists and museums who've long struggled with the best way to preserve video games such as EverQuest or World of Warcraft. Uh, But the new rules will be disappointing for average users who had hoped to get abandoned multiplayer games up and running again just for fun. Albert told Motherboard that the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment pushed to make these exemptions cover affiliate archivists, allowing private citizens to contribute towards software preservation. The Copyright Office specifically rejected that request, they said. I think one of the things that they are concerned about is that the number of people who do this should stay relatively small. There's also a catch for the institutions that do this work. Archivists and preservationists have to acquire the server code legally, and that's a tall order. In other words, they can't emulate the server code. They can't figure out another way to make the server infrastructure work. They have to go get a legal copy of the code. And the reason that's an issue is highlighted in this quote in this article. And I'm going to link this in the description, obviously, because it's an excellent article to read to kind of try to make sense of where we're at with video game preservation right now. But the quote says, it's very unlikely that anyone saved the server code. John Hardy, director of the National Video Game Museum in Frisco, Texas, told Motherboard, in all the archiving we've done, we've never had a company say to us, here's our server code. I'd say nine times out of 10, the server code has not been archived or saved. It just gets formatted or whatever, or just discarded with the server. The other piece of this is that they're requiring all access to the video games as emulated and recreated and otherwise preserved to be on the premises of the museum location. So that might work for some games with kind of a limited 
multiplayer component that you want to preserve in the state that they were in. And that might work well enough for Drive Club where you've kind of got this notion of leaderboards and asynchronous play. But what this article highlights is the nature of massively multiplayer online role-playing games, which essentially are flat sandboxes that get their character, that get their game from the fact that players are interacting with it and that you need a certain critical mass of people involved in that game to get the flavor for what it was. And that flavor is not going to be available if everybody has to go to the Smithsonian to play the copy, the one copy of World of Warcraft that's running uh, in in the world. And again, we're imagining this in 30 or 40 years because World of Warcraft is, if not going quite as strong as it used to, is still going pretty strong. And that's the situation we find ourselves in. These are the incremental steps we see things like the Library of Congress taking to essentially work around the edges of the Copyright Act to allow video game preservation. But I wanted to highlight this issue in this video because it's such an important one going forward. You heard me talk about it to start this conversation, but we're living in an era of games as a service. We are not a couple months removed from Electronic Arts essentially declaring the death of single player games uh, and saying that games as a service was essentially the future. Now, I personally disagree with that. I think there's still going to be a robust place for single player experiences, but even those single player experiences are likely to have some online or multiplayer hooks. Uh, my game of the year from 2018, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is 99% a single player experience, still goes and gets live updates to update a store, an apparel store, a marketplace, and still goes and gets live updates to get you new contracts and new things to do on a daily and weekly basis. It has those online hooks. Uh, you get photography from different people on your friends list or online that help to populate the world map to show you different and exciting locations. Every single game, no matter how single player it is, has online hooks with rare exception. Uh, some of those which live in the Sony library, uh, I, I don't know that God of War, for instance, has any online hooks, although I could be forgetting some. Please feel free to let me know in the comments if I am. Uh, but we are now living in an age where this isn't the PlayStation 2 era where SOCOM was such a significant departure from what we were playing at that time that it's a shame it wasn't preserved because it was so different. This is an era where everything is online. And I am very concerned about what preservation looks like one generation from now, let alone three generations from now. And I think that's worth talking about. I think that's worth kind of considering uh, because the law is a slow mover. Uh, but I do think that the law probably should be moved to reflect what is the modern era. Uh, and that modern era is not limited to video games, which, while I love them, I'm passionate about them, are a hobby, are an entertainment, the law needs to be changed for major software as well because we are living in a software-as-a-service uh, life as well. Uh, half of my clients are probably interacting with software-as-a-service contracts every day. I'm negotiating them every day. I'm talking about server terms and service level agreements and things that relate to an ongoing online infrastructure. And to the extent we lose the ability to kind of keep track of the past of those service level agreements, of the software as a service, as well as the games as a service, we lose the ability to improve them going forward. And that's what I'm really concerned about. I think there are legitimate cases to be made by the ESA, by Nintendo, by Sony, and by Microsoft, that they are concerned that people essentially want to take access to these games and somehow profit off of them. 
I think the fact that Blizzard is coming out with a World of Warcraft vanilla server is an important note to say that there is still a commercialization possibility for these copyright holders. I'm not trying to take away the rights of the copyright holders to commercialize the property that they put so much investment in, that they spent so many man hours building. But outside of that, I think if you do have a dormancy, if you have a game that hasn't been utilized in a long period of time, that can't otherwise be accessed, that no one can learn from, that it's an important step to take to preserve that game. And I think that there are changes that can be made that really must be made uh, if we care about this industry and if we want to improve it going forward. Uh, so that's today's relatively heavy virtual legality episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please like, please subscribe. Please share it with anybody you think would be interested in this topic. Uh, I know it's a bit of a broad one, uh, but I feel passionate about the fact that video game preservation is an important issue and it's only going to be made more important in the future. Uh, if you, you want to leave a comment about how right I am, how wrong I am, please do that as well. I love engaging with folks, having that discussion. Uh, this is a somewhat contentious issue, certainly on the business side, because the entire industry has kind of lined up against preservation efforts. Uh, and I think ultimately in the long term to their detriment. Uh, and I think it is certainly important to have folks out there saying, hey, I understand protecting corporate rights. I'm a corporate lawyer, uh, but there's a better way to do this. And there's a better way that makes it better for the entire industry to move forward. Uh, and that's what I would like to see. Uh, but again, if you like this, thank you so very much for watching it on YouTube or for listening to it on uh, a podcast service. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality.